Welcome to the Keep Cool Show, the podcast in which we cover how cutting-edge climate technologies connect to the world in which we live. I'm your host, Nick Van Osdal. We need to be able to build up as a planet our capability of removing carbon to the tune of 50 to 100 billion tons every single year. And we need to do that as rapidly as possible. And the only possible way to do that today is with nature-based solutions, which tend are tended to be seen as not as permanent. So I get where people are coming from because they want to treat it like, look, if we can just pull that carbon out and then we turn it into rock, then we just never have to think about it ever again. And let's just keep doing that. That's great. Cool. But that is not going to scale as fast as we want it to from just a physics and engineering perspective. All right, Paul, welcome to the Keep Cool Show. Great to have you. Thanks for having me, Nick. I'm excited for this one. Brilliant. So I've known about Nori for a while and I've had the pleasure of covering you all in the newsletter previously, but for folks who are listening and are not at all familiar with what Nori does, you mind catching them up to speed? Sure. Nori is a carbon removal marketplace. This stems from the need for the market to understand what's the value of pulling a ton of CO2 out of the atmosphere. Like if we want people to remove carbon from the atmosphere, they need to know that they can make money by doing it. Otherwise, they're not going to start a business. And I know you've written about tons and tons of different carbon removal businesses. And that's happening because there are more and more commitments from companies to pay for this kind of thing. But that's just really the start. That's not going to be enough. The commitments that we're seeing from like Frontier Climate or other advanced market commitments that can get things going. But if we're going to actually solve the scale of climate change, we have to pull out over one and a half trillion tons of CO2 <laughs> from the atmosphere. And the only way that we can scale that up is by building a global commodities market for removing carbon. Also, just to get people, make sure people are fully oriented and get them up to speed, it's super important that, you know, Nori is a carbon removal marketplace. Let's spend a tiny bit of time or maybe a little bit of time, Not doesn't have to be a tiny bit, talking about the difference between things like carbon offsets and the full scope of carbon credits and how carbon removal is different. Yeah, so carbon offsets came about in the late 1990s after the Kyoto Protocol. And what happened was the UN and a bunch of you know, groups involved with them came up with this thing called the Clean Development Mechanism. And it was a framework that different parties could use to create carbon trading markets. It was not a market itself. And the idea back then was to create offsets where someone is reducing their future emissions and then proving that because they are selling some carbon credits, that so they generate some carbon credits from reducing their future emissions. And then they sell those credits to some sort of emitter who wants to offset the emissions that they are producing. At Nori, we tend to call these avoidance credits, avoidance or reduction credits. That's historically what like 95% or more of what the carbon offsets market has been, even until the last year or so. Right. I think even to this day, I think it's, yeah, 95%. Yeah. So th these example projects would be like renewable energy deployment, carbon capture at power plants, methane capture at landfills, dairy digesters, clean cook stoves, that sort of thing. And it sort of makes sense why people would do that. And also, historically, there was a lot of opposition to developing more carbon removal, because especially scientists were concerned that if they developed carbon removal techniques that could scale, then that would more or less give like a free pass to the large emitters like oil and gas companies. And so they looked at it as a moral hazard, and they kind of avoided that for a long time. So that's why carbon avoidance credits have been a thing for so long. But when I first started working in this space and doing research in 2015, I was looking at it and it was like so obvious then that it didn't like that question didn't matter anymore. 
there's still far, far, far too much carbon in the air. And if we actually do want to undo a lot of what we've done, then we're going to have to start removing massive amounts of carbon. So that was how I got started in this and kind of taking the approach where I don't remember the exact quote from Steve Jobs, but just talking about like the real importance of saying no and like having a hyper focus. And so at that time, I was thinking, well, there are plenty of efforts underway to mitigate carbon emissions and deal with avoidances and stuff. No one is focusing on carbon removal at the time. And so Nori is just going to be exclusively focused on carbon removal. And that's where we remain today. Yeah, there can be a lot of power in that narrow focus, especially in something that's gotten as complex as kind of voluntary carbon markets have. And we can talk about that a little bit more later on. But you gestured at this earlier, but it's been kind of a really big year for even just that narrow carbon removal market on the funding side. You've had a lot of dollars pouring in and people making billion dollar commitments to say, hey, we're going to purchase this product. Even in the future, if it hasn't been produced yet, we're going to set aside dollars to purchase these products down the line. You've had a lot of companies coming out and saying, we're developing new techniques to remove carbon out from the atmosphere and sequester it. And you've also had a number of other companies kind of trying to play the same role that Nori has popping up saying we're going to be, you know, a marketplace for this type of stuff. So given all of that, the market is still also very supply constrained. So why don't we spend a little bit of time talking about, you know, where the scale is today and what you really see as like the big unlocks for actually getting this to something that's millions and ideally billions of tons and not just kind of like a tens of thousands of tons solution for specific companies. Yeah, well, carbon removal is a lot more difficult than avoidance credits uh, because avoidance credits just means like doing less of something or or sometimes implementing technology in a different way. But it's always introducing a counterfactual of saying like I was going to emit something and then now I'm not. Removal is different in that you have to pull it out and then you have to maintain that carbon sequestration. You have to make sure that it's not going back up in the air. And we tend to think of these in terms of sort of two broad buckets. There are more nature-based carbon removal solutions like soil carbon, tree planting, kelp farming, mangrove restoration, biochar, and so on. And then there are more industrialized manufactured solutions like direct air capture, carbonated cement, construction materials, managed mine tailings, and and things like that. The rough rule of thumb is that the nature-based stuff is much more affordable and easier to scale, but it is far, far, far more difficult to measure. And then the industrialized removals are a lot easier to measure. Often it's just as simple as a a sensor, but they're so expensive and very difficult to scale. And there are a million different startups trying a million different ways of doing these things. And they're just not at that stage. Like the world's largest direct air capture facility today removes 4,000 tons per year. That's tiny. That's like one customer for us on the purchasing side. So it's just not there. So for now, nature-based is really the only thing that's capable of scaling. And you all focus, at least at this point, where you've started with soil carbon sequestration. So I'd love to talk a little bit more, again, wanting to paint a picture for people that might not be as familiar with it. How does soil carbon sequestration work broadly? And then we can dive a little deeper from there. Yeah, we needed to start somewhere. And in 2018, what happened was we had some relationship with a pre-existing, because one of my co-founders, with the soil scientists at Colorado State University who had built and were maintaining a platform called Comet Farm. Comet Farm has been funded by the U.S. Department of Agriculture for decades. And what they do is rigorous soil sample testing at different locations around the United States. 
And then they overlay different data models on top of that, soil type maps, weather data, and so on. And then they take in operating data about what's happening on the farm, like what kind of crops you're growing, your level of tillage, whether you're planting cover crops, irrigation and fertilization dates, and so on. And then they can infer, based off of the soil sample testing that they're doing around in the area, how much carbon is being sequestered because of these regenerative practice changes. So what is regenerative practices? Soil is a mixture of dirt and rocks and minerals and lots of organic matter like microbes and fungi. And when you do conventional, think of like big corn farms kind of thing, when you do conventional farming, what you're doing is you're planting your crop, you are adding fertilizer, you grow it in the fall, you harvest, and then you're plowing and leaving the field basically empty fallow throughout the winter. And then you repeat the process again next year. And when you're plowing, what you're doing is you're turning over that topsoil and exposing a lot of it to the air. It becomes softer. It's not as compacted. It's just loose. And that can blow away in the wind and it will expose a lot of the organic matter to die off. And that organic matter is really important because it holds the soil together. And when you do regenerative practices, what you're doing is you're reducing the amount of tillage. You might still do a little bit, but it's going to be pretty minimal disturbance. And you plant cover crops and you keep cover crops in there in the winter so that you've got roots in the ground that are continuing to provide nutrients to the organic matter, like the microbes and the fungi. And that organic matter, that is the carbon. So by increasing the amount of organic matter in the soil, they are pulling carbon out of the air and they're making their land healthier. They're able to reduce the amount of money that they're spending on fertilizer. They're able to reduce the amount of money that they're spending on fuel and labor because they don't have to run the tractor. Like it's extremely expensive to run these tractors. These are like half a million to a million dollar machines. And it can be thousands of dollars an hour just to run the fuel costs. Wow. Like just turning it on is like a hundred dollars. <laughs> and so it's like really, really expensive. And if you can save on that and farming is a very low margin business, business, then that can make a big difference for them. So there's a lot of reason why farmers want to do these regenerative practices, but it's often quite risky. It's a big change. Farmers are very much an industry where they like to do things the way that it has been done before because it can be more predictable for them. And so it's somewhat difficult to get farmers to wholesale transition to this stuff unless there's a price incentive for them to do so. And that's where carbon payments comes in. And that's why we've been working with farmers who are doing these practices and helping them get paid for the carbon they sequester. And it's roughly about half a ton that can be sequestered per acre per year. Per acre per year. Cool. Yeah. I was going to ask about the scale. Broader American croplands could sequester 400 million tons every year. And globally, the estimates are maybe around 5 billion tons per year. That's like the total addressable market. So if like everyone everywhere was doing this, that's 10% of our annual emissions. So that's a really, really significant amount. Yeah, it's funny. I was I had Alex from Moxie Ventures on the podcast most recently before you and him and I were talking about trying to inject some of this climate tech conversation in the context of like American exceptionalism. I'm like, let's become the biggest carbon sink from soil carbon sequestration in the world. You know, that'd be a great thing to lead on. Yes. <laughs> We totally have the capability to do so. We have all the natural resources and also all of the underlying necessary science. Uh, we have the best soil type maps of anywhere in the world. So you just spent a decent amount of time the last month or so talking to farmers out in the middle of the country. Let's talk a little bit more about what some of those conversations were and maybe a little bit more about kind of digging deeper on the hesitancies that some of those folks have about potentially adopting these practices or just the questions that they're asking. 
So in June, I went to Nebraska for a few days, visited several different farmers who have sold carbon through or are about to sell carbon through our market. And then the week after that, I went to Fargo, North Dakota for some ag tech conferences where we hosted a couple workshops where we had farmers come in and we were asking them questions about carbon markets and cryptocurrency and all of that kind of stuff. And I learned a bunch of things that were relatively new to me. One is just being able to see these operations, especially these gigantic corn farms, like six to 10,000 acres or so. These are huge, huge businesses. They, like I just mentioned, they're dealing with equipment that each tractor and they are a planter or sprayer. Maybe they have like four or five of these. They're like a million dollars a piece. And they're doing an insane amount of planning work and doing a lot of experimentation to figure out what is the right mix of these regenerative practices on their fields. And they're doing this to reduce soil erosion and because it's better for their land. One of the reasons that one farmer said to me that he switched to no-till was because he just couldn't find labor. He couldn't have enough people to drive the tractors when they needed to do it. And so he was just forced into that sort of situation. We were asking questions like, how much do you think you need to make in order to expand your operation? Because oftentimes what they're doing is maybe they'll do 10 to 50% of their fields under regenerative practices, and then the other half are more conventional. And so if we want to see them change and go to 100%, like what sort of thing would that take? Well, what we've been finding with Nori is that the carbon markets, like carbon sells for $20 per ton in our market today, which is an arbitrary cash price. And we can talk about that. But that's not enough to convince like their neighbors to adopt this. And it's not enough for them to prioritize this very highly. It's like number 30 on their list of priorities. <laughs> They're looking at things, situations where they have like a two week planting window and they just have to get in there and they're dealing with weather and all that stuff. So carbon markets are not valuable enough for farmers. And that was a big part of what that workshop was about. There's a lot of desire by farmers to understand exactly how this stuff is being measured. They want it to be accurate and they're concerned and don't want like governments or big ag companies coming in and telling them exactly what they have to do. They want to be able to maintain the optionality to operate on their land the way that they see fit. Another important factor is I think it's about 40% of farmers don't own their land that they're farming, they're leasing. And of all the farmers that we talked to, almost all of them owned some of the land and then rented some of the other fields. And that introduces other challenges because when the farmers sign up with our marketplace, they're signing a 10-year contract that says they're going to keep that carbon in the ground. And if they're going to have that ongoing obligation, then we need to make sure that the landowner is also okay with that. The landowner is not going to just pull the rug out and go sell that land to like a commercial property developer or something. And the other crazy thing to me is that the landowners and the tenants, the farmers, they're only working on like one year leases and they're just renewing them. Some of them put them into contracts and some of them just do handshake agreements. And so that's that's a difficult thing to try to get someone to commit to 10 years or so. And we found that that's a bottleneck in our like enrollment process and going through the, the part of like collecting all this data and then going through verification. Getting that assignment of authority from the landowner can take a lot of time. And then the other factor is the landowners are often aging out. So uh, one of our farmers told me about one of his landowners. She's a 90-year-old woman in Oregon who's like quite supportive of what he's doing. But when she passes away and the property passes on to her inheritors, 
there are like seven different grandchildren. And if they're not all on board with this, this could get kind of sticky. And so it's important to get those contractual agreements in place so that there is the ability to go forward with the carbon sequestration. Wow, no shortage of challengers and stakeholders to coordinate to get more people on board with this. One that you touched on a few times is kind of the measurement and quantification and verification side of this thing, which, yeah, I mean, definitely something that I can imagine as a farmer, I would have a ton of questions about. How does Nori approach tackling that question of really understanding rigorously, like how much carbon is being sequestered? We talked a bit about some of the models that exist for this and and how sophisticated those are, but what does the full kind of process flow look like? So there are some people out there who would insist that soil sample testing is the only way to do this, the only way to be accurate. We disagree because if you were to just do a, a test today and then a test in three years or something and measure the difference, that doesn't really tell you that much useful information. It's telling you the, the change in carbon, but we don't know how much carbon is there because the farmer changed those practices versus how much is there because of just natural changes in the environment. Yeah, and it could vary a lot by you know, how deep you sample and all kinds of different stuff like that. Yeah, that's the other part. Like you go collect the sample. So that means like sticking, well, there are different ways to do this, but like one would be you stick a core down in a particular field and where in the field do you do that? That That's first question. What time of year do you do it in? Second question, how deep does it go? Third question, when you pull it out, do you mix it all up or do you let it stay in the mix that it was? These questions matter. And then it goes to a lab where they do spectroscopy on it to figure out how much organic carbon is in there. But the lab can give you uncertainty ratings because they know how to control for what they're doing, but that does not correspond to the collection that was done. So there's a lot of room for error or just, you know, introduced variability from the collection process or soil sample testing. So from our perspective, it's not really all that useful. So the process-based modeling approach, and by the way, we have a whole blog post where we went into detail explaining all this stuff, and I am not the soil scientist on the team, but that's as far as I can go on detail. But the process-based modeling approach is saying, based on the soil sample testing that's done in a pretty rigorous and controlled manner, as much as it could be by the USDA. And then these data models, it's called Descent that USDA provides. So there's like satellite stuff, there's weather and so on. Based on that, and based on the practice changes that you made and what year you switched, which helps set the baseline, this is how much carbon you're putting in the ground relative to what would have happened if you had continued with conventional practices. So it's creating an artificially modeled counterfactual of saying like, if you go down path A, this is how much carbon should be there. And then because you made the practice changes, path B, this is how much carbon is there. You measure the difference between the two and that's how much we reward the farmer and then they can sell those carbon removals. And have people tried to square the two methodologies to see if they are kind of producing similar results as in like soil sample testing versus the models? Or is there so much variability in the soil sampling that that's not even necessarily like a fruitful exercise? Yes to both. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. I'm probably not the best person to answer that in that level of detail. But yes. Fair enough. And something else that's come up is, you know, there's additional benefits to farmers potentially for adopting these practices beyond, you know, the potential draw of selling carbon and receiving payment for carbon credits that they might produce. That introduces something that's, you know, a little bit more niche in carbon markets, but there might be some people listening saying like, what does that mean for, you know, the additionality of these credits? There are some people who kind of think about the financial additionality of different projects and whether they would have happened 
absent the ability to sell carbon credits. And, you know, we could foresee scenarios in which farmers are might adopt these practices without any of the draw of being able to make money from an outside party for it. So what would you say to people that would kind of like want to invalidate those soil carbon sequestration credits as a result? So historically, the carbon offset registries like Vera and Gold Standard, they put this additionality test in place for exactly the reason that you described. And they just call it additionality, but we think that it's worth breaking it out into calling it, like you just did, financial additionality and baseline additionality or incremental additionality. And so we do the latter because we're setting a baseline and we're measuring how much carbon is being removed relative to that baseline. So that's important and like seems obvious and intuitive to people. The financial additionality test, though, I guess it sort of makes sense for the avoidance credits because you're saying that because I'm doing something, there's less carbon going up in the air and you're trying to make sure that you weren't already going to be reducing your emissions. That makes less sense to me for removals if for two reasons. One is just because it's much clearer that you are performing some sort of action and then relative to that baseline, carbon is coming out of the air. Like that's actually happening. It's not like an imaginary future. And then secondly, the concept of saying, would this project have happened if not for the payment, by definition, also means that only unprofitable projects could ever qualify for carbon credits. And that's just silly, because we need more projects removing carbon. And so if we were to sit around and wait for that to scale up, we're just going to wait forever. It's not going to happen. So at Nori, we reject the concept of financial additionality. It's illogical when it comes to carbon removals. I tend to agree with you for sure. And I think it speaks to or it illuminates kind of just how much of the voluntary carbon market was built really for avoidance credits only. And, you know, those dominate the market. As we said earlier, they're 95% of supply. If you look today, maybe it's closer to 90. But in any case, they're not really built for carbon removals and lumping removals in with avoidance credits produces some of these kind of problems around the way that you define some of these concepts. That's another reason why we only do removals and don't mix them up in our own market. What are some of the other kind of leverage points in voluntary carbon markets that you see similarly where Nori has a fundamentally kind of different perspective versus what a legacy registry like Vera might tell me on a podcast? Well, the one that's a little bit shorter, because I have two and one of them is longer. The shorter one is that we're a fully integrated end-to-end marketplace. So we develop the methodology that we put that through peer review with scientists. We collect all the information that we need in order to get the carbon quantified. We send that out to third parties. There's a third party verifier who comes in and verifies that. And then we market the credits, we sell them to buyers and then get the suppliers paid. And then we haven't really talked about this part yet, but then the other component is that where the real point of Nori is to facilitate price discovery, and that's where the crypto piece comes in. So there's that. There's the fact that we're a fully integrated end-to-end market. Like Vera and Gold Standard are not that. They don't do all those pieces together. But the other bigger, more important thing is that we believe fundamentally carbon should not be traded. And this goes back to when I first started researching this space in 2016 and 17. So 2015, I decided I wanted to work on carbon removal, started a meetup group in Seattle, realized there was no one anywhere in the world working on this, uh, because we met like four other groups, and they were all university research centers. So I think Climeworks was founded in 2009. So maybe them and like one other DAC company or something, but no one was doing this. And what I wanted to understand at first was thinking back to my business management school days and like, okay, what's the first thing I should do? Well, I should go look at how big the market is. And I looked up a group called Forest Trends that puts out this annual state of the voluntary carbon markets report. 
and they were breaking out volume, like how much money are people spending on carbon credits? And they broke out the volumes in an interesting way. They said, here's the primary market sales and here's the secondary market sales. And I saw that and I thought, well, what the hell is a secondary market sell? <laughs> Why would you sell this more than once? Especially because I was thinking about this in the lens of carbon removal. I wasn't really thinking about it as avoidance, right? So a secondary sale, and the, by the way, the other thing is that the secondary market was like twice as big as the primary market. So a secondary sale, what happens is, let's say you're a project developer, you do some sort of carbon project and you get your credits from Vera or whoever, and then you most often sell them to a broker. And that broker is then going to go find a buyer for them. But the broker has taken title, ownership of them, and is now going to sell them to someone else. And then that someone else might be another broker. So the carbon credit could be sold more than once, twice, thrice, four times, five times, and so on before it's potentially retired. And I'm doing big air quotes here. Now, retirement is a carbon market term that means that you're saying, I'm taking final ownership of this. It's no longer available for resale. Give me credit. And the registries act basically as a database of serial numbers. And it's shocking to me still how manual much of this is. And so the buyer will report back to the verifier and say, <laughs> okay, mark my name as the final owner. Very few of carbon credits that are ever issued actually end up retired. And so you can get situations where you could have like an oil and gas company who buys up a bunch of cheap carbon credits for like 25 cents a piece or something, and then makes a big splashy announcement about how they're offsetting blah, 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 so much of their carbon emissions. And then one, they probably didn't pay for an actually useful carbon project. But two, let's say that they did, those are sitting as an asset on their balance sheet. And if they want to, they could, when no one is paying attention later on, because that happens so often, just then resell them. And so then at that point, did they actually do anything? The other sort of problem is more from a, like a root cause analysis. So thinking back to the scope of the problem is we need to remove over one and a half trillion tons of CO2 from the air. That means we need more people removing carbon. We need more people incentivized to do that, more people starting businesses and so on. If we are going to be embarking on this, then we need to be redesigning our systems so that every new dollar spent results in net new carbon coming out of the air. So if you're a project developer and you do a carbon credit and you sell it to a broker and then that sells to someone else and someone else and someone else, if you look at the total amount of money spent over the lifetime of that carbon credit, like very little of that actually ends up in the hands of the person who did the project. But that's the person that matters. The second, third, fourth broker, they're just meaningless middlemen pushing a piece of paper around, enriching themselves off of doing nothing. So it's important that we figure out how to get the suppliers paid and get paid more than they are currently today or have been in the past because we need incentives to be higher. So at Nori, that was something that we just adopted right away is we said, you're not allowed to resell this carbon. And we do that by enforcing it on the blockchain. So we actually use an NFT to represent the carbon that's been removed. And then once it goes to the buyer, it becomes non-transferable. So it's in their wallet forever. They cannot move it. And that's visible, that's public for everyone to see. But if we do that, if we do this immediate retirement thing, then that begs the question, what's the price of the carbon? And how do we figure that out? And so to date, up until now, since we launched sales originally in 2019, we've sold and pre-sold in total about 100,000 tons so far on that farmers have sequestered. And it's sold at prices of $15 and recently went up to $20. But that's an arbitrary price that has just been set by the farmers. 
And it's not really reflecting the actual market demand that's out there because we know that companies like Stripe and Shopify and Microsoft are paying sometimes $2,000 a ton for certain types of carbon removal out there. So in a market where there is little supply and uh, very large demand, you would expect that the prices would rise to sort of meet that demand, but it doesn't happen because no one has a reference that you can look at. Like if I ask you, what is the price of oil or corn today? It would be trivial for you to just go Google that, and then you will see reference prices that are trading in large commodities markets. So oil is at like $95, $97 a barrel right now. Corn's at like $7 a bushel right now. And you can find that. But if I ask you what's the price of carbon today, then you're going to see answers ranging from under a dollar to thousands of dollars. And we don't have a way to coordinate. Prices make the world go round. They're the most important aspect of our economy because prices are information and information is what this global economy runs on. So we need a price discovery mechanism for this carbon. And the way that we do that at Nori, I'm still a little bit surprised that even today in 2022, we're still the only ones who are doing it this way, where we'll be launching soon our own native token, the Nori, that's all caps Nori. So Nori, the company is capital N, and then the token is capital N-O. The token is meant to purchase one ton of CO2. So one Nori always purchases one ton. And that Nori price will float relative to supply and demand. And there's a whole tokenomic design for that that people could read about on our website if they wanted. But as the Nori trades, it will reflect the market price for a ton of CO2. So in the same way that if people want to know the price of oil, they go look at Brent crude or West Texas Intermediate. We want them to go look at the Nori if they want to know the price of carbon. I'm super aligned with the need for there eventually to be a commodity reference price for one ton of carbon removed from the atmosphere. One additional layer that makes it potentially more complicated than a barrel of oil is there's also this question of how long you can safely sequester that ton of CO2 for, right? So how do you think about that in terms of trying to create kind of the commodity reference price, especially as different methodologies for removing carbon vary considerably in what types of quote unquote permanence they lend themselves to? So the carbon credit that we sell is called an NRT, a Nori removal ton, and it's 10 ton years. So we've been adopting the ton year framework similar to NCX. And the 10 ton years comes from the way that that Comet Farm model works. It's based off of a 10 year rolling average of carbon. So 10 years kind of makes sense. 10 years is also about as long as you could possibly get a farmer to agree to contractually. (laughs) And so the farmers have to re-verify every three years that the carbon is still there and they're continuing with these practices. And then at that point, they could sell because they've been removing more carbon in years one, two, and three. So they could sell more NRTs from that point on and then sign a new 10-year contract. So it kind of keeps pushing it out every three years, 10 years, 13, 16, 19. So that's how we do this. So one Nori purchases one NRT, which is 10 ton years. As we think about adding other methodologies, we are thinking about doing it in a way where the amount of permanence uh, stored will be Basically, like if the sequestration time is 100 years, then we would issue 10 NRTs. So that's 10 years times 10 total, which gives you 100 years. And we would probably apply a discount rate to that and that kind of thing. And But I will say, and this is just my personal hot take, I don't actually think permanence matters all that much. And I think that companies like Stripe, who are putting a very myopic focus on permanence, are doing a disservice to the industry because we do not have a long-term carbon problem so much as we have a today carbon problem. So 
What actually matters far more than permanence is throughput. We need to be able to build up as a planet our capability of removing carbon to the tune of 50 to 100 billion tons every single year. And we need to do that as rapidly as possible. And the only possible way to do that today is with nature-based solutions, which tend are tended to be seen as not as permanent. So I get where people are coming from because they want to treat it like, look, if we can just pull that carbon out and then we turn it into rock, then we just never have to think about it ever again. And let's just keep doing that. That's great. Cool. But that is not going to scale as fast as we want it to from just a physics and engineering perspective. So the other way to think about it is, let's say that we do build up that capability that we're it's the year 2060. And we are now removing 50 billion tons every single year worldwide. And we're seeing the global PPM number come down. And now maybe it's down under 400. And it's trending towards 350. Great. That's what we want to see. It's not like we're going to get to a point where we get that PPM back to 300 and we say, okay, we're done. We can stop removing carbon now. That's never going to happen. We are going to be building this capability of carbon removal, and it is going to be with us forever. As a species, we are now in charge of managing the carbon cycle for the planet. Because what's going to happen is the industries and the economies of the world will adapt. We're never going to fully decarbonize everything. That's just not possible. So we're always going to be continuing emitting. We will reach some sort of equilibrium. So instead of thinking about it from a permanence perspective, we should be thinking of it as if it's a while loop from programming to say, while carbon, atmosphere carbon concentration is greater than 300 parts per million, then remove more carbon. That's it. And that's going to go forever. I have a few things to add, which is, you know, the scenario you laid out, which is just like, if you got back to 300 ppm and you had this like massive, vibrant direct air capture industry, it'd be like you'd be playing out the second kind of version of the current stranded asset problem that we have now with fossil fuels. It's like, if you weren't going to remove any more carbon at that point, then you've built all these massive machines and suddenly like that's not a viable industry anymore either, which would be an interesting problem to have. Perhaps not the worst problem to have in the world, but still. And then there's also so many co-benefits to scaling nature-based solutions beyond kind of the speed and scale that they lend themselves to. Like if we do as a global population, a massive amount of reforestry and afforestation and ocean-based solutions or coastal-based solutions like building more mangrove forests and all the soil carbon sequestration, there's just a ton of additional benefit that comes with that that you don't always get with manufactured solutions. You certainly can in some instances, but another factor. I agree with all of that. When I first got into this, when I was looking at carbon avoidance projects, especially, I found it weird that co-benefits were priced in because to me, it would be simpler if we just focused on the carbon numbers, like, because it really doesn't matter how or where the carbon comes out of the atmosphere, as long as it comes out and stays out. Like that's the only thing that ultimately matters from a climate change, global warming perspective. But yeah, there are these benefits and we can scale these up now. And at Nori, we're agnostic. We want to support all methods. And like I mentioned, that we have come up with ways for how we could sort of standardize across different methodologies and have still a single global carbon reference price. But 5 billion tons a year is nothing to sneeze at. And I think these companies that are trying to do the right thing, who are trying to be leaders in the space and are trying to help bring costs down and trying to build this industry up, I think they're doing themselves and a world a disservice by avoiding the nature-based stuff. I mean, it's definitely important what they're doing for other other types of solutions because you know out of a portfolio of 50 engineering enabled solutions like there might be a few that are just absolutely gangbuster and are super important but yeah i sympathize with your point which is directing capital to farmers in any part of the globe to do more soil carbon sequestration or even to groups that do really judicious reforestation like all of that could be big time bang for your buck 
Let's talk a little bit more about the Nori token. We don't talk much about crypto markets on this podcast, but it's certainly a tougher market to potentially launch a token into in some ways than it might have been six months ago. How are you thinking about the launch and what should people listening look out for? I actually think it's a better time. So Nick's saying this because the crypto markets are down. I think it's better because then the people who do participate in our launch are going to be more honest and earnest participants. Uh, And I would rather do it now than in a time when like if I never hear the words bored apes ever again, I would be so happy. I think that's just an abomination of a project. But anyway, in a bear market like this, it's the time when people who are like genuinely engaged in this stuff and believe in it are participating. And that's good. So what we are planning to do is we have an interesting sort of challenge ahead of us, because unlike most crypto projects where you can just launch the token price into a vacuum, and it doesn't really matter what the token price is as long as people are using it, and it's not necessarily correlating to something real, we are because the Nori is pegged to one ton of CO2, which is a real world commodity. And because we already have existing customers transacting at pre existing prices. So it'll be very interesting to watch what we started with is like most crypto projects do by launching a discord community. And so we turned that on last month. And within a couple of weeks, we already had 7000 members in there. So people could go to nori.com and find our discord and join that. And that's where we're going to be like interacting with a lot of regular people answering questions about how all this stuff works, kind of, you know, having a similar conversation to what we've just had in this podcast so far. And then later in the year, we're going to be launching in using a tool called liquidity bootstrap pools on balancer. So it's a way for us to create what's sort of like an auction to actually reveal true market price discovery. And what I really want to do is get some of our farmers into the Discord and have these crypto people talking to farmers and learning from them, have the farmers say like, okay, this is what my input costs are. This is how my business works. This is the price of carbon that I'm hoping to receive. Or this is what my neighbor has said he would need to make in order for him to actually prioritize carbon sequestration. When you do that, now you're talking about like actually symmetrical information sharing and you have the beginnings of a true commodities market. So we want this market auction from the LBP to kind of reveal at the start, like what is the price of carbon and then go from there. And I don't know what the right price is. You don't know what the right price is. The farmers don't know what the right price is. And an individual crypto trader doesn't know what the right price is either. But when you put all of this together, you get a market and that tells us what the market sees the price as at that moment. And the really interesting thing is, if you think about it from a farmer's perspective, the way that they work is they'll grow grain, so corn or wheat or something, and then they'll harvest it, and then it'll get stored in a bin or a grain elevator, and they'll hold on to it, and they will watch what the global commodities prices are. And then when they see a price that they like, they will sell it. And this carbon setup that we have is going to work exactly the same way. So when they sell their NRTs, the carbon, they receive one nori per ton paid by the buyer. Once you have the nori, then it's the same thing. The nori is your grain elevator. When you see a price that you like, whether it's through a centralized exchange or through a DeFi platform, then you go sell it for cash or whatever you want to sell it for. And you have all the optionality in the world just in the exact same way that you do by selling grain. So the cool thing is, while crypto is a relatively new technology to a lot of farmers, the way that it works is totally the exact same way as their entire business works. 
yeah, I can imagine how making some of those parallels or analogies is much more comprehensible to them. And I like the way that you describe the token launch because it ties back to the beginning part of our conversation around like how do you align all these different stakeholders, whether it be trying to incentivize farmers to supply more carbon removal and connecting kind of like funders to farmers like in something like a Discord so that they can actually talk together or through the actual market infrastructure of the token. That's kind of where you start unlocking some of the power of that pricing. Yeah, it is ultimately about aligning incentives. Like all of the approaches that have been taken from a policy perspective in the past for not all, but like most of the uh, policy approaches have been somewhat punitive. And so in this way, we're offering a way for people to make money by pulling carbon out of the air. And if people can make money from doing something, then they will do it. And that's what we want them to do. Perfect. It's a strong note to close on. I'd also be curious, one last question, what other climate technologies or even just technologies are you most excited about? Like what spaces in climate are you watching beyond carbon removal? Well, the thing that's most relevant to us is on the verification side. That is the biggest bottleneck and the biggest challenge. And so what I really want to see is more companies, I mean, this is happening, but I want to see more companies going into the verification space and figuring out how we can reliably, incredibly, and for a low cost and in a quick period of time, measure different forms of carbon removal and doing so in a way that gains scientific community consensus. That's really what's needed the most to scale this stuff up right now. And how about, because I still count that kind of in this carbon removal, carbon markets world, how about beyond those two? No, that's a really good one. Something else? Nuclear energy, please, pretty please. <laughs> so let's do the, I'm still going to come back to carbon removal, but I'll, I'll say why. Let's do the basic math. We're emitting about 50 billion tons of CO2 equivalent every single year. That number is probably going to rise over time still. And we need to decarbonize as much as possible, but it won't get to zero. And we have this one and a half trillion dollar trillion ton debt that we have to pay down. So if you look at nature-based solutions, you could, of all those that I mentioned earlier, maybe 15, 20 billion tons per year max. That's not enough. So we're going to have to be dependent upon scaling up technological solutions like direct air capture. Well, DAC uses an enormous amount of energy and often fresh water too. So we don't have that energy as we are seeing today right now. Or the water. Or water, exactly. So the only possible technology that could ever scale to meet that challenge is nuclear energy. There is no other solution and there never will be. You're not sold on deep geothermal? It's just not enough. It's not enough. And also that is going to be location dependent. And so we need to be able to deploy this at different regions around the world, um, especially when you start involving water, because now you're going to have to have like desalination plants and you're going to have to power those. And then you're going to have to places to put the salt because you don't want to just like salt your coastlines. So energy is important. I've seen estimates ranging from two to five to even 10 times the amount of energy that we currently produce today in the world is what's going to be necessary just for direct air capture. Wow. Yeah. And I mean, people think that it's going to be like 4x to electrify everything too and get it off fossil fuels. So yeah, renewables cannot possibly get there. It, physics constraints are just too high. So nuclear, uh, we need more nuclear, we need cheaper fission, and we need someone to get fusion working. That'll be the real moonshot when fusion starts kicking in. Well, I look forward to uh, episode number two someday to talk all about nuclear for a while. And I uh, look forward yeah. <laughs> to when I can see the Nori token price on Bloomberg.com for the carbon removal reference price coming soon. You and me both. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> all right, Paul, thanks so much for being on. Thanks, Nick. Thanks for tuning in. 
So you don't miss the next episode on another cutting edge climate tech, make sure to subscribe on Spotify, Apple, Google, or wherever it is that you get your podcasts. And to get even deeper, you can sign up for my newsletter on workweek.com. We'll see you soon.